Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 396th edition of Talk Tattoo brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. We know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. Hey, good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck. I hope everyone had nice Thanksgivings, and hello, everybody. Very good. This morning, our lead story is about the need for coders to embrace APRDRGs and HCCs. That's right. The coding world has moved beyond just CCs and MCCs. Indeed, it has. Senior healthcare coding consultant Christy Pollard reports our lead story this morning. She's going to explain how the coding world has changed so rapidly in the last 10 years. But something that hasn't changed is the continuing need to monitor malnutrition among elderly patients. Indeed, that is so true. In fact, there's a new study on malnutrition that was published by the Journal of the American Medical Association. We have two reports on malnutrition. We sure do. Dr. D. McLean Blanton will report on the clinical implications of malnutrition. And Molly Hegarty, a registered dietitian, will report how capturing the diagnosis of malnutrition can serve as a CC or an MCC when used as secondary diagnosis. Indeed. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson has a Talk in Tuesday coding report. And you have a talkback segment this morning. What are you going to be talking about? I'm going to discuss multi-omics and the potential changes to the history and physical requirements for the outpatient E&M service. Thanks, Erica. Looking forward to your segment uh, coming up in a couple of minutes from now. This is Tuesday. It's December the 3rd, and you're listening to the 396th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Accomplish big things in little time. AHIMA's on-demand coding webinars offer a timely, flexible solution to keep pace with the rapid changes happening in the health information industry. Walk away with new knowledge and know-how. All it takes is an hour. AHIMA's 2019 coding webinars cover topics like obstetric coding doesn't need to be painful, improving revenue integrity, the new frontier for HIM professionals, the value of complete quality coding audit program, and more. Visit ahimastore.org to browse all topics. Here now is Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report. Lori? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. We very rarely talk about newborns on Talk 10 Tuesday, so I wanted to spend my time today talking about birth weight, prematurity, and significant problems affecting newborns. Newborns are assigned MSDRGs in the major diagnostic category of 15. Here are some definitions to consider. A neonate is an infant less than four weeks old. And from a coding perspective, prematurity is defined by birth weight and or gestational age. Prematurity is birth weight of 1,000 to 2,499 grams or a gestational age of 27 to 36 completed weeks. Extreme prematurity is birth weight less than or equal to 999 grams or a gestational age of 23 to 26 
completed weeks. The diagnoses of prematurity are assigned to MSDRG 791 and 792, depending on the presence of major problems. The diagnoses for extreme prematurity are assigned to MSDRG 790. Major problem diagnoses may also impact full-term neonates, which is MSDRG 793, or neonate MSDRG 794. Examples of major problems include maternal conditions affecting the newborn, birth injuries, metabolic disturbances of the newborn, adverse effects of drugs, RH or ABO incompatibility, and some of the congenital deformities. From a clinical documentation perspective, the newborn record should specify if the infant was born inside the hospital or outside, if the condition is congenital or acquired, uh, the gestational age, and being very specific about the birth injuries that occurred um, when the baby was born. Remember that birth weight is used by APRDRGs and MSDRGs and affects the grouping. The specific codes can be found in the MSDRG Definitions Manual, version 37, which can be found on the CMS website. Back to you, Erica. Yeah, Lori, one of the things I actually find that people do sometimes with uh, neonates that they need to be careful about is when um, you need to make sure that you use a P code for a neonate and an O code for obstetrics or the mom. So sometimes there are, uh, are conditions that can, you know, there, it can have an effect for both the maternal and the baby. Make sure P codes go with babies and O codes with, go with moms. Thanks, Lori. That's Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, published a study last week on malnutrition. We have two reports. First, we're going to hear from Dr. D. McLean Blanton. Dr. Blanton will report on the clinical implications of malnutrition. And then Molly Haggerty, a registered dietitian, will report on capturing malnutrition as a diagnosis. Here now is Dr. Blanton. Thank you. This is a meta-analysis about malnutrition, talking about its active nutritional support, clinical outcomes in medical inpatients. The clinical question is, does inpatient nutrition intervention make any difference? Included are medical inpatients, excluded are surgical patients, and everybody in an ICU on grounds that they may be more catabolic and harder to demonstrate an impact of nutritional support. In each of these studies, there's a treatment arm with nutritional support and intervention and control groups with no alteration of the hospital routine. So what does uh, nutritional support include dietary advice, oral nutrition supplements and extra snacks, food fortification, and enteral tube feedings, think DOP-OFF, NG-TUBE, but they specifically excluded TPN. So what did they look at? Their primary endpoint is mortality, black and white, easy to identify. They also looked at several secondary endpoints, readmissions that were not elective, infections, functional outcomes, and nutritional outcomes in calories and protein in and weight gained during inpatient hospitalization. In the control group, the mortality rate was 11%. In the intervention group, 8.3%. That's an absolute change of 2.7%. 
and a 25% relative lower mortality in the treatment group. And, and this is in, in, in hospital mortality and up to six months. The readmission rate in the control group, 18%. In the intervention group, 14.7 absolute change, an 18% relative fewer rate of readmissions that were non-elective. In terms of nutritional outcomes, the control group took in 48 grams of protein each day. I have no idea how much that is. So I looked up how much protein is in an eight ounce filet. That's 34 grams. So the control group got an, an 11 ounce filet every day. Uh, the intervention group got not an 11 ounce filet, but a 14 ounce filet each day, 23% more protein. Of course, everybody understands they're not getting six, but they got 23% more protein. The intervention group got 27% more calories. So what did that do to their body? The control group actually lost weight. They went down four-tenths of a pound. The intervention group gained 1.4 pounds. So that's a 1.8-pound swing, significant. Well, how did they do in terms of infections? Was there any difference? No. Uh, with respect to functional outcomes, no significant difference either. So with intervention, they ate more in calories and protein. They gained weight instead of losing weight, and they had fewer unscheduled readmissions. But they did not have fewer infections, and there was no difference in the functional outcome. But I have to emphasize here, this is during the interim of these studies. Some were just during the duration of hospitalization. Some went out to six months. But mortality was higher in the control group. So what killed them? Was it their primary disease, or was it regular hospital food? My next question is, might patients do better if clinicians paid better attention to fueling them? If we thought of them as heat-generating engines that require high-quality fuel, might they do better? Malnutrition is a secondary diagnosis that started well in advance of admission and has no expectation of resolution during the hospitalization, so physicians' attention is primarily focused elsewhere. Now I'm going to beg a registered dietitian, Molly Hegarty, Please show us how to fix this. Molly? Thanks, Dr. Blanton. I could not agree with you more and so glad to be talking about this today. Malnutrition is so important, but physicians are busy and they're not trained well in nutrition care, but they're the ones that need to document properly and oversee the nutrition plan. Malnutrition is a secondary diagnosis, but it's really important from a quality and reimbursement perspective, especially in the acute care settings. And registered dietitians are the food and nutrition experts in this clinical setting on the care team. And what a lot of people don't know is dietitians can do a comprehensive physical exam. They can recommend the diagnosis of malnutrition and complete a care plan to coordinate with the bigger team. This is really important in the coding world because malnutrition is a medical diagnosis that requires supporting characteristics along with an intervention and treatment plan. And that's where the dietitian is a great resource for physicians. Research shows that 20 to 50% of acute care patients are at risk for malnutrition, yet only about 7% of patients have a documented malnutrition diagnosis. This 
lack of diagnosis results in care management and discharge strategies that don't account for all of the patient needs. And as this article shows, malnutrition is a major risk factor associated with high mortality, morbidity, functional decline, prolonged hospital stays, increased risk of readmission, and very significant increased health care costs. So this JAMA article talking about nutrition support um, is really, really crucial. It's the future of medicine today. So we look to dietitians to complete this care plan, complete the physical assessment, and to work with the physicians um, to document this properly. Because what a lot of folks don't know is that dietitian services are not reimbursable in the acute care setting in most most cases. And so that's why it's so crucial to work with the physicians and with the care team to ensure that the correct diagnosis, the documentation, supporting characteristics are inserted into those care plans and into the medical record to ensure that we can have the correct DRG billing. And leveraging the RD's expertise is the most important piece of that. There are two really amazing um, physical assessment criteria that you can use. So I encourage uh, both physicians and folks in the coding and billing space to go and talk to the nutrition department about what they can do because they are truly the experts and can lend great value both in terms of patient outcomes and financial outcomes for many healthcare facilities. Back to you, Erica. Thank you so much. You know, it really makes me crazy when I uh, am consulting and a doctor says to me, well, you know, that's not my job. It's the dietitian's job. You know, the diagnosis of malnutrition is the doctor's job, and the dietitian is a very important resource for them to make the right diagnosis. So thank you both. You heard first from Dr. D. McLean Blanton. Dr. Blanton is a physician advisor with the Brundage Group. And then we heard from Molly Haggerty, a registered dietitian, both reporting on malnutrition. This morning, our lead story is about the rapid changes that have taken place during the last 10 years in the coding world and how today a coder needs to embrace the new world of HCCs and ARP or DRGs. Someone who has witnessed this rapid change is senior coding consultant Christy Pollard, who files this report. Christy? Good morning, Chuck. Well, you know, 10 years ago, we started the ball rolling on ICD-10 implementation, and that kept our attention for several years. At that time, if you were learning ICD-10, you were ahead of the game and assured a place at the coding table for years to come. Well, those years came and went, and while it's fun and to sit back and reflect, like many coding professionals, I find myself looking forward to the next 10 years and wondering where to focus. Is there a need in the future for coders in the traditional sense of having a person who reads the medical record and assigns codes? I don't think that that need will ever dissolve completely, but the reality is if you want to remain relevant and competitive, you need to be more than a coder. We've entered the era where super coders will be the ones to survive. There was a time when the top of the coding ladder was in DRG validation. Knowing which conditions were CCs or MCCs and the nuances of sequencing was enough. 
And while that's still an important skill to possess, the emergence of APR DRGs for most state Medicaid plans has given hospitals insight into a new way of slicing and dicing their data to focus in on patient severity and risk of mortality. Understanding how documentation and coding impact APR DRG reimbursement is a skill that coders should have in their back pockets along with their MS DRG knowledge. Now, while APR DRGs may not be so shiny and new, risk adjustment is. HCCs have really taken off over the last several years with different risk models popping up for certain payers. There may still be some hospital coders out there who view HCCs as a physician pro-fee thing, but data for risk adjustment plans also comes from hospitals. And in my view, this is really is the future of healthcare. I think it's critical that coders start learning the basics of risk adjustment and how documentation impacts those risk models. I also don't want to leave outpatient coders out of the mix. I don't want to make it sound like there's no future in the CPT realm. While HCCs are based on ICD-10 CM diagnosis codes, there are still plenty of payers who utilize CPT and HCPCS. There's a wealth of opportunity for outpatient coders, and that involves stepping outside of your comfort zone. Over the years, I've seen a general decline in the number of that's-not-my-problem coders, but they still exist. A that's-not-my-problem coder is one who focuses solely on CPT codes that begin with numbers 1 through 6 because everything else is hard-coded. And in other words, not their problem. The future of outpatient coding lies beyond the safety of the surgical section of CPT. Specialty coders for areas that are commonly hard-coded are in demand. Think interventional radiology and cath lab. Many of those procedures are hard-coded, but they're complex cases that require coder oversight. And I, we really can't have this discussion without talking about technology. Artificial intelligence is taking a larger role in the coding process, whether it's computer-assisted coding, which aids the coder by highlighting text and suggesting codes, or simple visit coding, which completely automates the coding process for so-called simple outpatient encounters. AI is here, and it's impacting our jobs. We can either be intimidated by it and freak out, or we can become masters of the technology. Our value lies not in relying on, but challenging these new technologies to ensure proper data collection. Embracing AI with a critical eye while improving our worth as coders is the key. Your future as a coder is in question, but your future as a super coder is solid. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Christy. That was Christy Pollard. Christy is a senior coding consultant for the Hagen Group. Chuck? Thank you, uh, Erica, and thank you, Christy, very much. And you can read Christy's excellent reporting on this very subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Thanks again, Christy. Now it's time for our very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your mind this morning? Well, Chuck, a Medscape survey popped up in my email a few weeks ago, and the title was, Is Technology Replacing the Patient History? And it linked to an article by a Dr. David Warmflash uh, entitled, Are the History and Physical Coming to an End? The survey asked three questions. How do you think technology is affecting the practice of medicine? 
do you think technology, technological advances will eventually make the patient history and physical obsolete? And what percentage of diagnoses do you make based on history alone and on history and physical together alone? Apparently, it was folklore that always led me to assert that 85% of the time, if you ask the patient the right questions, listen to their answers, and do a good physical examination, you don't need to do any studies to figure out what is wrong with the patient. The seminal article quoted, uh, 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 I'm sorry, the article quoted a study, which was the seminal article from the British Medical Journal from 1975, which found that H&P alone was adequate for diagnosis 91% of the time. Now, this article introduced me to a new concept, multi-omics. The, this word relates to the set of new omic technologies, such as genomics, epigenomics, immunomics, proteomics, and metabolomics. The application of these multi-omics to diagnosing and pinpointing treatment of diseases is indeed revolutionary. But will the utilization of these advanced techniques coupled with next-generation imaging and wearables data really replace the patient-provider interaction? When CMS started floating the concept of letting the provider decide how much history and physical is indicated for any individual encounter, my alarm bells started going off. My experience is that even excellent physicians don't always do excellent documentation, even under the current mandated documentation requirements. Relaxation of documenta documentation requisites is certainly not going to inspire bad clinicians to improve their documentation either. Is CMS making the appropriate adjustment to attain their goal of relieving provider burden? The logical action to me would be to reassess the presently mandatory PFSH components. Past medical history may shed light on today's issue, so make the requirement relevance. A review of medications may reveal side effects or prevent interactions. However, the fact that a patient smokes or drinks, uses illicit drugs, or what they do for a living may not be necessary for every encounter. Family history could be significant in certain situations, but irrelevant and a waste of time in others. Clearly, a comprehensive review of systems is not necessary for every patient, even the highest level patients. Make the requirement an appropriate review of systems without mandating number of points. As per the final rule scheduled to snap into place in 2021, performing and documenting a, quote, medically appropriate history and or physical examination, close quote, in the outpatient office setting seems intuitively reasonable to me. The problem is, without some guidelines, will this be challenging to assure um, compliance? Will this leave room for interpretation for the auditor to deny levels of service because they don't think the history or the physical was adequate? Additionally, Will providers misunderstand the rule and generalize the guidelines across other places of service where they are not relaxing the E&M um, requirements? The reality of clinical practice is that under some circumstances, an H&P is sometimes sufficient to make the diagnosis. Sometimes multiomics would be enough, but most often a combination of history, physical, and data is optimal to take care of a patient. We need to use technology as a tool, not as a substitute 
for the patient-provider interaction. And then we need to document it so everyone else knows what we heard, saw, thought, and plan. And that's it for me today, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Erica, very much. By the way, you can read her excellent reporting. We're going to be posting that article that you just heard her read from later today at the ICD-10 Monitor site. We've asked our panelists to stick around. We've got a couple of questions that came in. And, Christy, these questions are something that I'm sure you can answer. The first question is from Sherry. She says, Will emerging technologies such as fully autonomous coding solutions with, with no human intervention using AI, will they reduce the demand for human coders and eventual extension of those coders? Well, as I mentioned, I you know I think the traditional sense of the coder um, may be a little bit in in question. Uh, there, when we see the fully automated coding, it's really for simple visit coding. Um, there will always be those areas like complex inpatients and some of the the surgical procedures where our coding is based off of documentation that can be somewhat subjective. And um, so I, I don't think it's going to, it may reduce the need. I don't think it will completely replace the need for coders, but it does really show the need for us to adapt and understand that technology so that we can become super users instead of, you know, just being afraid of it. I'd like to pipe yeah. in on this one for a second. Um, sure, I do not believe that anybody should be re relying entirely on computer-assisted coding or computer-assisted CDI as a substitute for having a human being actually reviewing it and making sure that what it's suggesting is appropriate and um, compliant. So I think that it may, hopefully it makes people a little more um, efficient and productive, but I do not think that it would be uh, adequate to have it replace the coder or the CDIS. I completely agree, Erica. And I, I would just add that I know of at least one facility that was doing simple visit coding and through their auditing process found that they were actually losing some revenue, so they brought it back in-house um, and stopped their simple visit coding. So having um, oversight and auditing over that is extremely important. Thank you both. Uh, Erica, do you mind answering the question that Steve poses here about medical coders being consulted to guide the creation of AI machine learning? I think that what he's bringing up is, you, you know, you watch a TV program and you think to yourself, did they have anybody in the medical field giving them any advice? Like you would never do that. Like that never would happen in real life. I would imagine that they do have coders and clinicians who try assisting them in making the algorithms, but I think that it takes a lot of testing to see whether the algorithms really bear out what was intended. Um, I'm sure that they do have consultants. I don't know of any. If anybody is one, feel free to write us and let us know that you do it and you know that there's a lot of input, but I suspect they do at least have some. This is Molly. I can jump in, you know, running a technology company myself. There is an art and a science for how technology can be used um, to enhance these clinical processes. So most companies will have consultants 
uh, that are providing them guidance. They're doing rigorous testing. There's a lot of internal and external standards to meet and a high bar to get over. But with that said, we need more folks in the medical space, in the billing and coding space that can speak both the language of healthcare and the language of technology. And that will be a really valuable commodity in the future. Very good. That's going to be a wrap for our 396 edition of Talk to Tuesday. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And I want to thank our panelists, Dr. D. McLean Blanton, Molly Hegarty, whom you just heard, Lori Johnson, Christy Pollard, and of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all of Talk to Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere. On any device, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk to Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.